Today we're in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. As we have been for the past several weeks, we continue on in this passage where the Apostle Paul is teaching the church at Corinth and teaching us about love, genuine love, Christian love. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read about the first five verses, which will include the section that we will be in today. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we can gather around your word. And we ask that your spirit would move in this place, move in us to convict us of our own sinfulness, but also to put the love of Jesus Christ on display in this text and in our hearts, Lord, to make us more like him. So please bless us with truth. Please challenge us with truth. And please change us with truth. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. During World War II, C.S. Lewis gave a series of talks on Christianity, and it was actually on British radio on the BBC. And it later became a book that some of you all have heard of, and even some of you all will have read, called Mere Christianity. And in the opening words of one of the chapters, he says this about what he calls the great sin. Many sins out there, he says that this is the great sin. This is what he writes. I now come to the part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think that I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Can you guess which vice Lewis is talking about here? What's he talking about? Which one would he call the great sin? If you have a bulletin and you see the title of the sermon... You know what it is. It's pride. Have you ever called yourself prideful? To Lewis's point, it is much easier to admit that we have a sinful temper or that we're lustful or that we're drunks. But we don't quickly admit 
to what Paul calls in this verse, boastful and arrogant. Now, we know that others are, right? They are, because we see it pretty clearly in them. But me, prideful? Hardly. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the essential quality in the Christian life, the essential quality in the Christian life. That one thing that is indispensable to everyone who names the name of Jesus, and that is love. It's such a basic concept. But the way that the world thinks of that word, it might not and does not capture the biblical sense of Christ-like love. They are not one and the same because God's love is unique. God's love can only come to a man through relationship with Jesus. And so if we possess this love, if we have it in ourselves, it is God-given. It is granted to us. It is a gracious gift from the Father. And then it begins to give shape to everything that we do in this life. Everything that we are is shaped by this love. It's like the ring in Tolkien's books. The ring becomes the motivating factor in all that its possessor does. The ring shapes the man in a negative sense. But here for the good, Christian love transforms the one who possesses it to be and to do what Jesus is and what Jesus does. It turns us into beauty itself. And this beauty The inner beauty of the heart will last forever. It goes on and on and on. That's what Paul says here. Love endures all things. It lasts forever. And I do believe that we will look glorious. I do believe we will look beautiful in eternity. But the greatest beauty that we will possess will be the character of the heart that we hear called love. Love, that will be our greatest beauty. The greatest quality about us is that we will have, in full measure, the love of Jesus Christ. And we are to begin cultivating this beautiful thing while we are here, removing the weeds in the garden of our hearts that would choke out that love. And many of the weeds, they come from one source, and that source is called pride. But when Paul describes pride here, he does not choose to use the primary word for it in the New Testament. Instead, he uses a word that is properly translated puffed up. Love is not puffed up. The ESV says arrogant, but this is actually what it means. To inflate something. He's the only person in the New Testament that uses this word seven times, and six of those are here in this letter to the Corinthian church. So this is a negative quality that Paul sees as a primary problem in this particular church. Many who are there are puffed up. It comes from the word bellows. How many of you all know what a bellows is? Just a few. It's that thing in cartoons that pumps air. You know, because we don't really have those anymore. I only see them in things like Tom and Jerry. And you know what they do when they've got the bellows? One of them grabs it and puffs up the other one with him, and he floats off somewhere. Well, that is the idea that Paul is communicating here, that these particular Christians have been overinflated. 
We might even say that they have an overinflated view or sense of themselves. So this or that person thinks that he is more or better than he really is. So this particular word tells us how a man sees himself or wants to see himself or wants others to see him greater, better, more as he inflates himself and floats away. It doesn't mean that he's always going to think of himself as better at everything else than every other man, but it does seem to mean that he'll focus on those things that he believes himself to be good at that casts him in a good light, things that don't cast others in quite as good a light as himself. In another place, Paul says that we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And elsewhere, that you are to count others more significant than yourselves. That's the way that we are to conduct ourselves in love, thinking more highly of others Lesser of ourselves, but we are prone to do the opposite, are we not? As Lewis says, pride is the great sin. And so we are prone to think too highly of ourselves and too little of others. That's what we do. We magnify our strengths. We magnify our strengths but I'm not prone to magnify your strengths. If anything, I'll magnify mine and belittle yours. That's what pride does. How many of you all have ever used binoculars before? Some of you. What do you do with binoculars? You look through them to look at something far off or small that magnifies that thing or brings it closer to yourself. That's what binoculars do. They make things larger or bring them close. But if you flip them over and look through the opposite end, what does that do? It makes the other thing seem so much smaller, doesn't it? Our pride is that way. We want other people to look at us to the right side of the binoculars and magnify me, magnify self. But we like to look at other people through the opposite end so that they will appear smaller than what they really are. But this is not the stuff of Christian love. Love will magnify others at the expense of self. That's what love does. I don't mean that instead of overinflating yourself, you start to overinflate your neighbor. That's called flattery. And that's fake. But there is a sense that you should begin to spend less time thinking about yourself and more time about him or her because love is other-oriented. And if you'll look at this passage with me, you'll notice that arrogance or this overinflated sense of self, it's going to bring about two sorts of actions or kinds of speech. Boastfulness, boasting, or rudeness. Those two things are on either side of this word arrogance or being puffed up. And these are the effects in the way that we look at ourselves and look at other people based on being prideful. So the first is boasting. What is that? It means to speak in a way that draws 
special attention to yourself. Speech that magnifies me. And so it is speech that naturally flows from an overinflated sense of self. If I truly think great of me, I will naturally speak greatly of me. It's just what will happen. The mouth is a bucket that draws its water from the heart. And if you send the bucket down into the well, it can only bring back and pour out what it finds down there in the well. So it is with the mouth. It speaks what it finds in the heart. That's what it does. So the boastful mouth is only speaking what it finds down in the man's heart. All speech centers on himself. He doesn't like to ask questions about those people around him because he's not interested. He wants the spotlight. Every story that's being told comes back to him, what he's seen, what he's done. And if you've got an experience and you're in conversation with him, guess what? He's got a, an experience that's one better than yours. So he fuses himself to be better, and that is how he speaks. The other side of this is there at the end of verse 4. It says, love is not arrogant or rude. So not only does arrogance or being puffed up boast about self, it is rude toward others. I think the NIV captures this well when it says that love does not dishonor others. The British would say love does not snub others. Those who consistently treat other people rudely do so because they think very little of them. The boaster thinks highly of himself, so he speaks and he acts accordingly. But the man who is rude is also speaking. He is also acting consistently with what he thinks about you. So if he belittles you consistently, that's how his attitude and his actions, his words are toward you. It is because he thinks little of you. You're of little consequence, little importance. Therefore, you're treated as such. And I say all of this as if we only know others to be boastful or rude. And I'm sure as I have been talking, someone has come to mind, haven't they? Somebody has. Hopefully not present company, but maybe. But these words were not written down and retained by the Spirit of God all these centuries so that we can become skilled at identifying the prideful men and women out there in society. Like we're good scouts finding the flaws in others. That's not why these words have been given to us. I imagine that you are already pretty skilled in that, are you not? I'm sure I am too. The hard thing, the necessary thing in each one of us this morning is not that we get better at seeing pride in others but so that we become more skilled in seeing pride in ourselves. 
And so, as I have been speaking this morning, how many of you all, don't raise your hand, but how many of you all thought about yourself when I said all these words and not somebody else? I'm going to guess that very few were probably thinking of themselves. As a matter of fact, you might even become defensive at thinking that this might even apply to you. You say, but wait, I'm not prideful. I don't identify with anything that you're saying. Well, that might be so. But it is not because pride is not present in you. It's because it has been allowed by you to hide. Pride is a shapeshifter, a chameleon. But it has a lot of symptoms beyond boasting and rudeness. And so maybe you don't really identify with either one of those, but Pride can do a lot more than that. It's quick to deflect blame onto other people. I think first about Adam. Like that was the first thing that he said when God came down. Where are you? Like, what happened here? It was the woman. She did it. And that's what we are like too. And it it does not just happen as we watch children play with one another. We might laugh at them because nobody wants to take the blame, but I tell you what, we see it in adults too, do we not? Don't want the blame here. No fault ever lies with me. That is pride. It can't stand to admit fault, like I might be wrong and you might be right. That would put you above me in some way, and I will not have that. Pride will prompt you to lie rather than to tell what really happened. It'll draw attention to the faults of other people so they won't notice the faults in you. But did you notice how she did that and how she said that? Just a distraction in some way so that my pride or my ego is not wounded. Pride yearns to be noticed. It can't stand to be left out. It needs attention. And it hides behind more acceptable names like self-sufficient or perfectionist, good self-esteem, maybe even outgoing. Pride makes us very self-aware. Pride is always asking the question, how does this make me look? I don't mean your clothes, maybe your clothes, but just how will this make me look to other people if I do this? And if it's going to make me look bad, I think I would just rather sit this one out. Maybe the Christmas choir. Indeed. (laughs) I couldn't help myself. As I was thinking on this particular point, it made me realize that over the years, uh, many of the times that I chose not to try something new, it was probably motivated by pride many times. Like I could have had an experience, tried something potentially fun, but for fear of failure, 
or shame. I just sat it out. No, maybe next time. Not this time. It wasn't always because I didn't want to. There was something kind of pulling at me on the inside saying, well, why don't you just give that a try? And pride was on the other side saying, oh, no, you're going to look really stupid. So I won't. Pride was rearing its head and I just wasn't paying attention. And so do any of these prideful tendencies ring a bell with you? Anything here? How about this one? But pastor, if anything, I'm not overinflated. I'm underinflated. My problem is not that I think too much of myself. It's actually that I think too little of myself. I have very low self-esteem. Well, that's not prideful, is it? Maybe. In fact, I might even say probably. Maybe you identify with this. And so what you find yourself doing rather than going around trying to make much of yourself is you are looking for other people to do it for you. Affirm you. You don't believe it about yourself, but you sure want to hear that others believe it about you. And we all need encouragement, but this one is something that's much different. It's not simply just the need for encouragement. So this problem that you call low self-esteem, or we might say is underinflation here, it might just come from the same place as overinflation. It's just in reverse. It's the same character. It's just dressed up in a different costume. They both stem from self-centeredness, not an other-centeredness. Self-love, not neighbor-love. You might even think that you're humble because you're not walking around talking about how great you are. And it feels humble because you're walking around talking about how not great you are. But no matter what, you are the chief subject of your thoughts and the chief subject of your conversation. It all still comes back to you. How does this impact me? How does this make me feel? It's still self-centeredness. You are always on your mind. Anybody hear Willie Nelson in there? <laughs> I actually looked up the words to that song, and it's perfect. Look them up afterwards. Maybe I didn't love you quite as often as I should have. And he goes on and on, and I could just say, that's just the way you're thinking about yourself. What's that? Thank you, brother. Maybe at the talent show this year, I'll break out my Willie Nelson. <laughs> but do you hear what I'm saying? You are always on your mind. Whether it is in boasting and lifting yourself up or dragging yourself down, it all still in some ways revolves around you. So I've tried to cover a few bases this morning and just touch on some ways that pride might show itself even if it's not simply in boasting or in rudeness. It reveals itself in all sorts of ways. 
And so if you don't think that you are prideful, you are fooling yourself. Because this really is the great human sin. So what do we do about it? How can we be healed of this sickness that's inside of us? If you remember last week, we were talking about envy. I said that the first thing that we have to do is name it and repent of it. And it's the same thing here. There's no new formula for this. Pride is sin. We name it. We claim it as our own. That's the name it and claim it religion that we've got around here. We name our sin and we claim it for ourselves. We don't let it slide. We don't give it, make excuses for it. Yes, Lord, it is my own. I am a sinner. So we name it. We ask the Lord to show us all the ways that this unhealthy self-love rears its head. Sometimes we don't want to see, do we? As a matter of fact, that's what I think good sermons or good preaching they're supposed to do. They're supposed to say things that I really don't want said. So I'd rather be like the ostrich and stick my head in the sand and just la 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 la, not hear it. But we need God's Word to tell us what we really are. And this is one of those instances. You need to be able to say this morning, I am prideful. Don't give yourself a pass. No healing will take place if you do. How is it that your overinflated ego gets in the way in your life? How often is it that you're overly concerned with how things will make you look? Or you're way too concerned with what other people think. When you lay down to sleep at night, or some of those things in your head, oh, when I was there today, what did she think when I said this? And you can't sleep all night long because you're wondering. That is pride, all of them. We want to begin cultivating what Love actually is. Not just killing off the sin, that's part of it. Not just naming it, but bringing to life the love that we are supposed to have as Christ followers. So if we only name it and claim it, that's only half the battle. Repentance is only halfway. We've got to look to Christ, do we not? Before we get there, though, C.S. Lewis has a helpful quote about the qualities of a humble man. This is what he said. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man... He will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he is a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. I like that last phrase. He's not standing around thinking about himself all the time or about how he should be more humble. He's just not thinking about himself. Well, what will he be thinking about? What is on his mind? Not himself. Others are on his mind. Brother, if you could, kill that. And so I do think that what Lewis says here is true. But what he does not do, he does not tell us what this chap, 
how he got to this place of humility. How did he get there? And so he helps us identify something about the humble man, but he doesn't help us to become the humble man. And I think that we could probably spend another sermon on this particular question, but for the sake of time, I want to be short and to the point. And so I ask you this morning, do you truly want to become humble? You admit that you're prideful, right? You're prideful. Every one of you are. So am I. So how do we become humble? Do you want to become humble? I have two simple encouragements for you. Two encouragements are these. Think often on the gospel and meet often with God. Because if you truly do these things, they cannot leave you prideful. Ask yourself this question. Who am I to ever think of myself so highly? Or more... More, better said, who am I? Who do I think that I am to think about myself so lofty and high? I am a sinful man that needed another man to die in my place. I am not a hero. I am not great. I am not even good. My pride wants me to think and to say that I am, but the gospel tells me what I really am. And it tells me that I am needy, very much so. But I walk around and talk about myself and think about myself as if I am not. But the gospel tells me what I really am. I need God's word to apply the corrective to my life. To straighten out my thinking and to straighten out my heart. It is prone to think too highly, but God's word makes a right assessment. So it tells me something about myself. That's what the gospel does. It gives me the bad news. But it also gives me the wonderful news. Because it tells me about my Savior. Who he is. It tells me that he is truly great. He's worthy of all praise. He is good in everything that he does. He is sufficient. He is perfect. That's who he is. He tells me that he's lowly and that he is gentle. He is self-sacrificing. He saw me for what I really am, and yet, what did he do? He came for me. His eyes saw with a perfect assessment everything that I am and that you are, and he still came. And that shouldn't make me feel good about me, because he didn't do it because I'm good. He did it because he is good. And he had a love inside of himself that makes him run to sinners like me and you. He is not repelled by us. The love inside of him draws him to us. It is absolutely incredible. And what kind of effect do those truths, if I am thinking about them rightly, what kind of effect do they have on my heart? What should happen there? It should have a humbling effect on me. 
They don't lift me up. They tell me what I really am, and they tell me about Christ. And they put my attention not on me, but on Him. And so even if you're the one who has what you might call low self-esteem, thinking too much about yourself, the gospel is still the corrective. Because you start to shift your thoughts off of you, and your thoughts begin to revolve around Christ. And you start to ask some new questions. What does he want? That gives direction to my life now. It's not always about what I want. What does he want? How does this make him look? What will give him praise? How can I boast about him? And so in this place where my thoughts are challenged and changed by gospel truth, I will meet Christ in worship. I do not believe that you can genuinely bring these truths into your heart and not praise Jesus. And they will humble you to the dust and they will exalt him. And that is a place of worship. Because true worship leaves self-centeredness behind. As we have come into this place this morning, that is, in a sense, what we are to leave behind. And we direct all of our attention on the God who is worthy of us opening our mouths and saying, You are great. Think of Isaiah when he stood in the presence of the Lord. Were his thoughts prideful in that moment? They were ab- that was absolutely impossible for him to be prideful. I am a man of unclean lips. In the midst of a people of unclean lips, I am ruined before you. He saw himself as he really was, and he saw the greatness of God. And so when we truly meet with the Lord of hosts, the merciful Savior of my sinful soul, I'll begin to see things as they really are. And so do you this morning want humility? It starts here. And so as you begin to develop this new kind of habit, something that we can just call discipleship because that's just what it is, constantly seeing gospel truth and being changed by it and worshiping the Lord, this is discipleship. As you start to do those things, you will begin to find what Tim Keller called the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Pride is bondage. It's slavery to self-worship, self-absorption. Everything revolves around me. But the gospel and God-centered worship, it sets us free. It releases us from that bondage. It gives us something so much better, a living relationship with our God that humbles us, but it delights our souls. There's something I think that's just wonderful about the Christian life that I I know that you're going to relate to this, but there are just certain passages of Scripture that just smack you down and lift God up, and those are so wonderful. Think about the end of the book of Job when he actually got it, got something of it. And he stood in the presence of the Lord 
And he understood that I should never have questioned you in any way at all, Lord. You are great and I am not. It was a position of worship and it was a position of humility. Isaiah 40 and 41, where God tells us how great he is and everything is as if the grains of the sand. There is nothing to him, but yet he thinks of us. Humbling. The letters of Paul where he lists all these particular sins and you start to read through them and you say, oh, I see that, I see that in me. And it hurts so bad, but it hurts so good. There's a good effect when we are challenged and convicted by God's word and we're not left where we were. That God shows us who he is and what he has done and that he delights to transform lowly sinners like us and glorify us as he brings us into relationship with his glorious son to give us what we do not deserve. And so I hope this morning as we close that as you hear what pride is and you see what love is, that you will leave here challenged. You'll see more of your heart, that you'll have been exposed, but it's a good exposure as it brings your sin out into the light and crucifies it. That is a good thing. And it's what every person in this room needs. And so I ask this morning as we close, will you make a commitment this week to looking at gospel truths every day. Looking at the gospel, allowing it to show you who you are while also showing you who Christ is. Doing that, but also spending time in personal worship. These things will make you a more humble man or woman of God. Will you do that? Will you pray this morning that God will grant these things to you in abundance this week to kill the pride that is in you, but also grow humility in its place? I want that for me, and I hope you want that for yourself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for your word. It searches our hearts. It does not let us run. It does not let us hide. It does not let us crave and continue in darkness. It exposes it all with the light. And I pray, God, that this morning that your word has exposed the darkness that still remains in our hearts. Those things that we give other names to. We coddle our sin called pride. We name it something else to make it more acceptable, more palatable, so that we can keep it and not kill it. But I pray, Lord, that your word and your truth and your spirit will not let us do that. That we will be searched and exposed with nowhere else to go but to run to you, the one who will cover our sin and crucify it and kill it and make us into the people that you desire us to be. People like your son who is perfectly loving and humble himself. Draw us to the cross. Draw us to worship. And make us humble like your son. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.